Hello everyone, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and we're going to talk about the birth of Jesus. Now, before Jesus is born, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and announces to him that, that Jesus was indeed going to be born. That's covered in Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. I've already done another audio on that, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to splice my discussion of Matthew 1, 18 through 25 right here, and then when that is finished, I'll pick up again, and we'll move to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and look at the birth of Jesus. We're now going to take up the second part of Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This is concerning the circumstances surrounding the virgin birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Starting with verse 18, Matthew says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, what does betrothed mean? That's something that's alien to our modern Western culture. Betrothed meant you were living apart but legally engaged to be married. So legally engaged, in fact, that if you wanted to become unbetrothed, you had to go through a legal divorce proceeding. There was no sex during this betrothal period. The, the man and the woman lived apart. This is exactly the opposite of the way it is today. People live together without the benefit of any legal uh, enforcement, and yet they have sex. So it's exactly the back, uh, exactly backwards. Now, before they came together, that means before they had sex, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to show you why this was an exceedingly embarrassing situation for both Joseph and Mary. And I'm going to set that up by showing you what betrothal meant to a Jew. It's something that we really can't understand too well. A betrothal was so serious to Jews that it was like the man and woman, the betrothed man and the betrothed woman were actually called a man and a wife. In fact, we can see this in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 through 24. Moses says this, If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged, that means betrothed to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death. Now, what that means is is that the girl who voluntarily had sex with a man who she was not engaged to, who she, who she was not engaged to, she was guilty just like an adulteress was guilty because she basically had committed adultery. The girl shall be put to death because she did not cry out in the city that so she wasn't raped. That's a different situation when, when a rape situation. This situation was with a girl who voluntarily had sex with somebody that she was not betrothed to. And the man is put to, get to death because he has violated his neighbor's wife. So the espoused woman was called a wife, even though she, in our terminology, she would not be a wife. And also we see this as we drop down uh, in the next verse, verse 19, and we go to verse 24. We see that Joseph and Mary are called husband and wife, even though they were not married yet. So betrothal was an extremely serious, serious situation. Now, this... The, they were found to be with child. Mary was found to be with child. How? Well, there's several options as to how Jesus, Joseph knew. Uh, Mary had gone down when she conceived Jesus. She had stayed with Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, down in Judea for about three months and came back. So she might have gotten large enough to where Joseph could see her stomach swell and Mary could see her stomach swell. Or it could be that just Mary missed her period and told Joseph. I think the most probable reason is that, that Mary had told Joseph, what Gabriel had told Mary. Remember the angel Gabriel came 
Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 31. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you, sh and you shall name him Jesus. So, I mean, I think Joseph uh, knew that's probably how Joseph knew that she was pregnant. But now the next question is, is did Joseph believe her when she said, husband, or not husband, but uh, betrothed? <laughs> I've just had a vision with an angel, said I was going to bear the Messiah, and I'm going to get pregnant even though I haven't had sex with anybody. Now, you know, that's hard to believe. That's hard for anybody to believe. Joseph could very well have been entertaining the thought, my darling Mary has been catting around with somebody, and she has had sex with somebody else and gotten herself pregnant, and here I am engaged to her and she's got a bastard child and here i am engaged to a woman like that maybe i might want to get out of this situation so you see what a terrible situation they were in well before we go into that some more let's talk about uh, in this verse it says the child was found to be mary was found to be with child by the holy spirit now the fact that the holy spirit is said to be the father of the child shows that it's extremely important because it shows that jesus did not inherit original sin, sin that originated in Adam and passed down through father to son to son to son to son until it gets to us. If Joseph had been the father of Jesus, Jesus would not have been a sinless Savior. And for someone to save us from our sins, as we know theologically, he had to be sinless. So the Holy Spirit is the father, not Joseph. And so that's extremely important for orthodox christian doctrine it also shows that the holy spirit is a living conscious person he intentionally said i am going to impregnate mary with the messiah who will save the world from its sins this is not just an accident it was a part of god's divine plan which he foreordained from the foundation of time it also shows that the holy spirit is a distinct person from the son because the holy spirit is a person and the child, Jesus, was a person, and we know that God is three persons in one. So there's a lot of theology in that little word. All right, let's go on down to, let's, let's return to talking about uh, Joseph's situation. He's got a pregnant wife, a pregnant fiance, if you will, and we don't know whether he believed Mary or not, if Mary told him about what Gabriel had said. So let's try to speculate as to what's inside of uh, Joseph's mind. He might have said, okay, we do know that he wants to put her away, okay? From reading the scripture here, he, he did want to put Mary away. He contemplated how he could do it. But did he want to put her away because he was angry with her? Or did he want to put her away because he was trying to save her from the shame? Or did he want to put her away because he was trying to save him from the shame? I, In my humble opinion, I believe that Joseph knew Mary enough to know her character that she would not be having sex with another man and... For her to tell such an incredible story about Gabriel appearing to him, it might have been incredible, but I believe Mary had credibility. I believe Joseph believed her. But nevertheless, even though he knew that she was carrying the Messiah around, he still had to deal with the fact that people are going to talk. They're going to ruin her reputation. They're going to slut-shame her. They're going to say she was a terrible woman who betrayed her betrothal vows, her marriage vows. So anyway, Joseph has got to decide... Now, Joseph had several options here. He could have accused her of adultery before the gate in the judicial system, but that would have been horrible. That would have totally destroyed Mary's reputation. Plus, if she'd have lost the trial, she would have been executed. So he didn't want to do that. He was a kind man. He's not going to do that. So his choice is, do I give her a certificate of divorce, as Moses allowed in Exodus 24? Do I give her a certificate of divorce and send her away privately so that nobody knows what happened? Or do I stay with her?
that's what he's banging around in his mind. He's not sure. So I'm sure Joseph feared this situation. He takes Mary over to eat with friends and relatives, and they find out she's pregnant. And they say, hey, Joseph, how did your wife get pregnant? And Joseph says, oh, an angel appeared to her and said she was going to bear the Messiah and that she was going to get pregnant by the Holy Spirit, not by a human being, not by a man. Now, what are people going to say to that? They're going to, they're going to say, uh, call 911, get the straight jackets, send him to the loony bin. He's crazy. That's what he was facing. But nonetheless, he kept her. Now, he had to have some encouragement from an angel to really convince him to keep her, but, but uh, because he was in a bad, bad spot. And I don't think we appreciate, and the modern readers appreciate what a bad spot he was in. And as it turns out, you know, even later, Jews to this day slander him. They say that he got Mary pregnant, that he was, that, and that Jesus was a bastard child. The rabbis say that about the Lord of the universe, that he was a bastard. It's pretty bad slander, pretty bad libel. Okay, let me give you a quote from John Gill to kind of summarize the situation. Gill says this, quote, Her situation was the most distressing and humiliating that can be conceived. Nothing but the fullest consciousness of her own integrity and the strongest confidence in God could have supported her in such trying circumstances where her reputation, her honor, and her life were at stake. Notice, her life. That's because the punishment under the law for adultery was death. So, bad situation. Go down to Matthew verse 19, next verse. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now, you notice that uh, Joseph is called her husband, even though they were not married yet, because betrothal was so serious that Joseph was, in effect, legally called a husband. He was a righteous man. Now, there's two senses of the word righteous. There's forensically righteous, which means righteous before God, as if you had never made one little tiny sin, such as Christians are forensically righteous when we, when we believe in Jesus. Well, obviously, that's not the meaning here, because Jesus hadn't done his work on the cross yet. Righteous man just meant you basically fulfill the law best way you could. And so Joseph, what we would call a good man, even though we're no good people in society, are not perfect, but we, we still call them good people. Joseph was that kind of guy. He was a righteous man, a good man. He didn't want to disgrace her. He was kind. And, and, and so he planned to send her away secretly to hide her disgrace. And his disgrace, too, by the way. But he was mainly, apparently, uh, at least according to the scripture here, it looks like he was more interested in hiding Mary's disgrace. Now... Uh, so how was he going to do that? He was going to give her a bill of divorcement. As in Exodus 24, you could give, for any indecency, uh, Moses said, you could give a bill of divorcement to protect the woman so she could prove that she was not just shacking up with somebody, that she had been put out of her house by her husband, and therefore she could legally get married again, as hard as it was in that society. All right, so now let's go to Matthew 1.20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. When he had considered this, when he had considered the fact that he was betrothed to a pregnant woman, that's what he was considering. An angel of the Lord is probably Gabriel, the same angel that, that announced to Mary. We don't know for sure. Angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, dreams are mentioned five times in the first two chapters of Matthew. That seems to be the common way that God communicated with his people in this critical time of redemption history. Joseph has a dream. Now, he, this dream was very helpful to him. It sounds like he was still 
doubting whether Mary was actually pregnant by the Holy Spirit because the angel says the child who has been conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. He sounds like the angel is trying to say, Joseph, don't worry now. It wasn't another man who did this. It was the Holy Spirit who did this. So she's perfectly innocent. So since she's innocent, don't be worried about what people are going to say. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Go ahead and take her because the Holy Spirit did this, not another man. And notice that when you're in the valley of indecision and you're in a horrible situation, how oftentimes God waits to the last minute and then he bails you out, gives you direction. Doesn't do it at first because we are supposed to walk by faith, not by sight. God is not a genie in a bottle. Now, you notice that there's ambiguity here. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Does that mean that the angel said, Joseph, go ahead and continue to be betrothed with her, live with her separately, and don't have sex with her? Or does it mean take her as what we would call a legal wife, an actual wife, I'll say? It's, it's not really clear. And notice how the angel says, Joseph, son of David. He mentions this Davidic line of Joseph. Because remember, the Messiah was going to be from the house of David because of that famous prophecy. Was it Second Samuel 7? Nathan tells David that his son is going to basically be the Messiah. And so that might, there might have been a hint in here, Joseph, son of David. Uh, hey, you know, God's working his plan through you. So I know you're upset, but the plan of God's going to be worked out from this. So don't be upset anymore. Now... If Joseph had any doubt what Mary had said to him before about she was going to be conceive, going to conceive the Messiah, all doubt is gone now. He's had a vision from from an angel just like Mary had a, vi a vision. So let me read a good quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown, the commentators, about Joseph's point of indecision here. Who would not feel for him after receiving such intelligence and before receiving any light from above? As he brooded over the matter alone in the stillness of the night, his domestic prospects darkened and his happiness blasted for life, his mind slowly making itself up to the painful step, yet planning how to do it in the way least offensive. At the last extremity, the Lord himself interposes. So this is an eloquent way of, of pointing out what a, how God helps us at the last minute. And it also indicates what a terrible situation Joseph was in. Now, you notice when the angel said that the Holy Spirit has done this, Joseph, so don't worry about it. He was vindicating Mary's reputation. And it's ironic now that Mary's reputation has been more than vindicated because now about two billion Christians on this earth know that she was not sexually immoral. Not to mention all the millions and millions of Christians who have passed on and gone to heaven already. They know she wasn't sexually immoral. So uh, it's only the Jews, the rabbis, are going around saying, ah, she was a slut. Okay, let's go to verse 21. Matthew 1, verse 21, quote, this is continuing quoting the angel that was speaking to Joseph. The angel says, she will bear a son, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus is, is the English version of the Greek word Jesus is the translation of the Greek word which which they use for Jesus. And, it, and it's, it's, so it's Greek. And the Hebrew form is Joshua. So whenever you see Joshua, it means the Lord save. And also Hosea, according to Gil, Hosea means the Lord will save. NIV study Bible says Joshua means the Lord will save. Okay? So and whenever you see Joshua, Hosea, or Jesus, think God is going to save their people from their sins. Now, God, well, it means God saves. And, and, but God saves from what? Well, you know, a lot of times Jews will think of salvation in messianic nationalistic terms. God will save the nation of Israel. That's the way they thought. 
But here the angel says, for he, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. Now that's individualistic sin they're getting saved from. So we should never in, uh, lose sight of the individualistic nature of salvation. It's not just national salvation, it's personal salvation from our sins. Now, the question is, uh, who's going to be saved from their sins? Because the angel tells Joseph that Jesus will save his people. Jesus will save Jesus' people from their sins. Who are Jesus' people? Well, is it all the people of the world? Obviously not, because all of the people of the world aren't saved. Could it be the Jews? He will save the Jews from their sins? Well, the problem with that is that all Jews aren't saved. So the only possible reference that it could be is he will save his elect, the chosen from the foundation of the world from their sins. Now, when I say that, that, that brings to mind John 17. I think John 4 has some stuff about... Well, you can look at my YouTube videos on particular atonement, limited atonement, my tulip videos, Grace Doctrines on YouTube, and I got I give you a whole bunch of stuff about how God the Father God God the Father gave the Son a group of people called the elect, called the sheep, and Jesus came down to earth to get the sheep. And so this is what it means here that God will save his people, the elect, from their sins. Let's go to verse twenty two. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Now, Matthew is, you know, the Jewish-oriented gospel. He loves to talk about how Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled. The word fulfilled is used 12 times in Matthew. Now, when you talk about fulfillment of prophecy, this gives a powerful testimony to the divine origin of Scripture, especially to Jews who are familiar with the Old Testament. It, it shows how the Scripture is accurate, even in small details. This, this verse here... This fulfillment verse, all this took place to fulfill, this shows Matthew's concern for linking the gospel with the Old Testament. We should never divorce the gospel from the Old Testament. Those prophecies that are fulfilled, those are the links that tie the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. This took, All this took place, all this stuff about the conceiving, a virgin conceiving the Messiah, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Which prophet? The prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 7.14 says this in a very famous verse, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, um, I'm not going to go into all of the debate over how this prophecy is fulfilled in the New Testament. Um, it's just simple enough to say right now it was fulfilled in Jesus' virgin birth. But it, books and books and books have been written on this. It's interesting theological stuff if you want to get into that, especially when you look at the issue of how the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament. So we'll just leave it right there and go to Matthew 1.23, and this is um, Matthew quoting Isaiah, uh, and here's the quote, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. It's a very similar quote, the, they, the she in Isaiah, she shall call his name Emmanuel. It's changed to they shall call his name Emmanuel. It might be because Matthew was quoting from the Septuagint. I don't know. But it's essentially the same prophecy. And Emmanuel translated means God with us. Now what does it mean God with us? That basically means God incarnate. He came in the flesh. He is now amongst the nasty, filthy human race that God loves and wants to clean up and redeem a portion of. Um, now... The Hebrew Emmanuel had to be translated into the Greek, God with us. Now, that probably indicates that John, that Matthew was writing in Greek 
to Greek-speaking Jews, and he had to translate the Hebrew into Greek for them. I know there's a big scholarly debate over whether Matthew wrote in Hebrew, Aramaic, or whether he wrote in Greek. I don't know. doesn't really matter to me, but I think he wrote in Greek because of that translated there, which translated means God with us. All right, this quotation of the Old Testament here in Matthew 1.23 is the first of at least 47 quotations in Matthew from the Old Testament, according to my NIV study Bible. And most of these quotations are messianic, talking about how the Messiah fulfills the Old Testament. So you see, Matthew is very concerned to show the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The word behold is a strong word. It's used to draw attention that a miraculous event is about to occur. It's uh, both in Isaiah and in the quotation in Matthew. The word behold is there. Uh, and, of course, the miracle is the virgin birth. Behold, the the virgin shall be with a child and shall bear a son. A lot of people like to say that Greek word parthenos means young maiden. Listen, if it's and, and that and that the, a young maiden is not necessarily a virgin. Listen, in that society, a young maiden was a virgin. And besides, you would not say, behold, the young girl should be with child, like in America. Behold, a young girl's with child. That's not a miracle. It happens all the time. Everybody's so sexually immoral here. But back then, a young woman that was a virgin, and she's going to be with child, that's something to say behold about. Okay, he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Now, his name shall be called. They shall call his name Emmanuel. That does not mean that Jesus gets another name, another proper name, like Jesus Emmanuel Christ. No, it just means that people will say of Jesus that he is with us. That's all it means. Now, as I said, with us means incarnate, in the flesh. Now, here's some scriptures to show. I'm going to give you two scriptures that show that Jesus is in the flesh, the incarnation, one of the most central doctrines of the Christian faith. John 1:14, And the word, that's Jesus, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was not a ghost. He was a human being. He was fully God and fully human. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, amongst human beings. Remember Emmanuel, which translated means God with us, God among us. John says that. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 1 Timothy 3.16, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He, was, he who was revealed in the flesh. That's how we saw the Son of God. We saw him in the flesh. At least the, the apostles and the people back then saw him in the flesh. And they told us about his human life. So the God, Emmanuel, whenever you hear Emmanuel, God with us, think Jesus in the flesh. He came and became incarnate. Go into verse 24 and 25 of Matthew chapter 1. And Joseph awoke from his sleep, from his dream where he saw the angel, probably Gabriel. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. The NIV says he took Mary home as his wife, which takes away, according to the NIV, takes away the ambiguity of whether Joseph just continued being betrothed to her, living apart from her. But it sounds to me like he started, went home and took her as his wife which would turn the betrothal into a marriage, which Gil believes. And I think that's probably what it means, because that gets rid of um, Mary's shame. I mean, it's no, no shame to be married and pregnant, is it? Now, let's assume that. Let's assume he's living with her as man and wife, but, but he kept her as a virgin. Now, you know, he had the right to have sex with her, but he voluntarily kept her as a virgin. Now, why would he do that? Well, 
Gill speculates it's so that Isaiah's prophecy could be fulfilled properly because Isaiah said a virgin will be with a child and bear a son, which sounds like it the virginity is not only with the conception of the child but also with the deliverance of the child in childbirth. A virgin will bear a son. A virgin will be with child, there's conception. A virgin will bear a son, there's childbirth. And uh, if Joseph had had sex with Mary before the childbirth, then that means that would not, Mary would not be a virgin bearing a son. And that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, Adam Clark says this, The virginity of Mary, previously to the birth of Christ, is an article of the utmost consequence to the Christian system, and therefore it is an article of faith. So you see, it was very, if Joseph had had sex, well, the people would say, ah, he's just, a, he's just born just like any other baby, you know, he, so what? He's not the Messiah. Now, of course, you could say, well, how are people going to know he didn't have sex with her? I don't know. We just have to take that on faith. He, uh, you know, he, he told people, and it got written down here in Scripture in Matthew. Now, so she was a virgin bef during her betrothal and after her marriage and before her birth, she was a virgin. But now the Catholics so happy with the idea of virginity, they carried even further and say that after Jesus was born, she remained a virgin, and all those brothers that Jesus had weren't really brothers, they were cousins. Well, to me, this is the most preposterous thing. And, you know, the Catholics amaze me how they can get away with saying things that are so preposterous. Do we really, are we going to believe that Joseph loves his wife Mary, and he never has sex with her? Oh, come on. That defies, that, that defies human nature. I mean, there's a lot of Catholic priests that are single, I guess, who who don't have sex with uh, women. Of course, there's a lot of them that have had sex with women, as we know from the history of the Middle Ages and modern American history. It's not women, it's with little boys. But there's a lot of priests who do that, who remain celibate and not be married, but they're not living in the same house with a woman. So we're really supposed to believe that Mary was a virgin after she gave Jesus. No, 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 I don't believe that for a minute. All right, let's finish up here. Joseph was obedient, kept her as a virgin, he took Mary as his wife, he was obedient as far as that was concerned, and he called his name Jesus, the angel told him to call the, his name Jesus. Why? Because the, that name was of so much significance, because Jesus was going to save his people from his sins. And thus endeth our explanation and exposition of Matthew chapter 1, the last part of it, on the virgin birth of Jesus. Now, having finished Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25, the Annunciation of the Birth of Jesus to Joseph, we now jump back to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and we'll look at the birth of Jesus. Verse 1 in Luke chapter 2, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Caesar Augustus, of course, is the great Octavian. His dates were, I think, 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. If my memory is correct, he was the famous... He was the first technical emperor of Rome. He was the second de facto emperor of Rome, Julius Caesar being the first, but he was the greatest. He, he presided over the Roman peace. Decided the whole world, that means the Roman world, of course, not the whole planet. Augustus did not have jurisdiction over India and America and so forth, but he did have jurisdiction over the Roman Empire, and that's what world means. It often means Roman Empire in the scriptures. So he decided that there should be a census. Well, usually that means for tax purposes. And that's what, in fact, the King James actually has not registered, but tax for taxes. Now, you notice it says it came to pass, not once upon a time. This is not a fairy tale. This is factual. This actually happened. Now, of course, liberals claim it doesn't happen because there's a problem with Quirinius, who was governing Syria, in verse 2. We'll look at that now. Luke chapter 2, verse 2. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Now, Quirinius was an actual historical figure. There's no question about that. So this is obviously not a fairy tale. 
the liberals don't even claim that, but they do say that Luke is not accurate in, in this particular detail. Here are the reasons why. This is from Wikipedia under the article Quirinius. The census took place in 6 AD, they say. Herod the Great died in 4 BC, and this discussion of the birth of Jesus was in about the time of 4 BC. Jesus was born right before Herod the Great died, and so that's 10 years off. And so, say the liberals, this census that Luke is talking about is 10 years off from when Herod the Great died, and Herod the, but Luke has Jesus being born at the time of the census. Well, the time of the census was 6 AD, and Jesus was born in 4 BC, and that doesn't match. They say that there was no evidence of a single census of the entire empire under Augustus. They say that there was no Roman census that required people to travel from their homes to the homes of their ancestors. And they say that a census of Judea would not have affected Joseph, who lived in Galilee. Well, first of all, let's take that last one first. Joseph lived in Galilee, but he was of the tribe of David. And David, of course, his tribe would be registered down there in Judea because that was David's tribe. He was of the tribe of Judah, so I don't think that's a, a real objection on the part of the liberals. The other, as we'll see, is the argument from science. Silence as we look at the conservative response to this. First, although there's no historical evidence of this census that has appeared yet, and I wish it would, but it hasn't appeared yet, but that doesn't mean there's evidence to contradict Luke. To assume Luke is wrong is an argument from silence. There's nothing that says that Luke was wrong. Maybe this is the only evidence that mankind has that there was a census taken in 4 BC in the Roman Empire by Caesar Augustus. Here's some more evidence. Conservative response number two. Luke was aware of the 6 AD census, and he would not have confused it with one that took place in 4 BC 10 years earlier. In Acts 5.37, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, says this. After him... He's quoting Gamaliel, the Pharisee who spoke up to the Sanhedrin. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, in the days of the census. So Luke was aware of the 6 AD census. He certainly would not have confused two censuses that far apart. And not only that, notice that he distinguishes the 4 BC census from the 6 AD census with the word first. In, Luke, in this verse that we're looking at here in Luke chapter 2, verse 2, the census first took place while Quirinius, Quirinius was governing Syria. The census first took place. So the first census was in 4 BC. Third conservative response. There's only been one inscription found that proves the 86 date. The only reason the liberals are happy with 86 is because of one inscription found in Venice. That's just serendipity, folks. If that inscription had not been found... We would not even know about the 6 AD census. And then liberals would not, would, would, they would just have to say, well, Luke was wrong. We can't prove he's wrong. We just assume he's wrong because, you know, no Bible writer can be accurate. Let me quote from Sir William Ramsey, the famous Bible scholar writing in the late 19th century. He was an expert on Luke. He's got that book out about Luke the sailor sailing all across the, all the details that Luke has about sailing and weather patterns and, and such. I just saw that book. I didn't realize it was still in print. Here's what he says in 1897. I don't have the book he says it in, but this is from Apologetics Press. Quote, when we consider how purely accidental is the evidence for the second census, that's the 6 AD census, the want of evidence for the first census, that's the 4 BC census, the want of evidence for the first census seems to constitute no argument against the trustworthiness of Luke's statement. And here's another interesting fact. 
Quirinius, according to historical records, actively served Augustus before and at the time of Jesus' birth. So he's around somewhere, and it's perfectly plausible that Quirinius did a good job on the 4 B.C. census, thus earning him the right to take the 680 census, which happened to be recorded by that inscription in Venice. Here's another interesting fact. Luke doesn't use the normal Greek term for governor here. He doesn't say that Quirinius was the governor. The legatus would be the, the normal Greek word. He, he used a participle form of hegemonon. My translation here, it says, the census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. There's the participle. So governing Syria, that's a very loose term. Sometimes it's used for a Roman proprietor or a procurator or a quaestor, but not a governor. And it was Governor Quirinius that took that census in 6 AD, but it was the Hegemonon Quirinius who was taking the 4 BC census at the time of Jesus' birth. Now, Quirinius farewell could have been a proprietor, procurator, or a questor in 4 BC before he was governor. So you see, there's plenty of evidence. Justin Martyr, as a matter of fact, in the middle of the 2nd century, said that in his own day, which was more than 100 years after the time of Jesus, you could look up the registers of the same census that Luke mentions. Well, you want to listen to the liberals as they wreck people's faith, as they wreck people's confidence in the Scripture, as they completely ignore what Jesus thought about the Scripture, how he never complained about the inerrancy of the Scripture, which the Pharisees also believed, in, despite the fact that Jesus opposed the Pharisees on every point, and in fact, despite the fact that the Pharisees eventually killed Jesus. But Jesus never complained about the doctrine of the Scripture. In fact, he said, the Scripture shall not be broken. He quoted it all the time. He quoted it incessantly. And he said his apostles, if you believe me, you'll believe my apostles. And one of his apostles was Peter. And he says, the Scripture, which is the technical word for inspired, inerrant, infallible writings, the Scripture is written by Paul is sometimes hard to understand. Well, you can just ignore all that, won't you? Be a liberal if you want. I just got an email from a, a liberal Protestant who, when I told him that his trashing, his, his lack of ability to find a harmonization for these Bible difficulties, these, these alleged contradictions, his lack of effort uh, lent to uh, destroying people's faith. And he wrote me back and said, he said, anybody that has his faith destroyed because the Bible has got, is full of holes and has errors in it, well, his faith wasn't much to start with. And I wrote him back and I said, the reason I believe in errancy is not because, the reason I believe in Jesus is not because the Bible is inerrant. The reason I believe the Bible is inerrant is because Jesus rose from the dead. And anybody that rises from the dead, you'd have to be, you'd sort of have to listen to what he says. And the Apostle Paul, he even used, he even used the singular form of a Greek word, this was in Galatians, seed and seeds, to make a theological point, which goes down to even one single letter of the Greek text. You know, they those ancient Bible writers had respect for the text, but not liberal Protestants. They don't give a flying frip about all the evidence that shows how respected the Holy Word of God was. And that's why I don't like liberals. Luke chapter 2, verses 3. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now God had promised that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Well, the ruler in Israel, of course, is the Messiah. This is the famous prediction of the Messiah's birth in Bethlehem. But Joseph and Mary were living in Nazareth, 70 to 80 miles to the north. 
So in God's sovereignty, the census was a perfect way for God to get Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem. They certainly wouldn't have traveled there on their own. This shows how human free will works perfectly with God's sovereignty. They voluntarily went down there to, to get their names enrolled in the census. And as a result, on the way, or as they got there, Jesus was born, thus fulfilling the prophecy in Micah 5. Two, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, Caesar Augustus apparently softened the blow for citizens of the empire because it was bad to have to travel to pay taxes. But in one's hometown, one could see friends and family. I don't know if it was because of the kindness of his heart. I just think it's more administratively convenient if everybody gets registered in their hometown. You keep track of people better. Luke chapter 2, verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Bethlehem, of course, is in the province of Judea. It's about four miles south of Jerusalem. That was a significant travel, 70 to 80 miles from the north to the south. That was a, it was a significant cost in time and money. But he did it because he was of the line of David. Jesus' ancestor, of course, was King David. Jesus inherited the kingdom that Nathan prophesied to David about in 2 Samuel 7, 12. And the verses around there, the famous prophecy that you're going to have a kingdom. I'm going to have a, David. You're going to have a descendant, and he's going to have a kingdom that will last forever, and so forth. So Joseph is fulfilling prophecy as he moves south. Luke chapter two, verses five through six. He went there to to Judea to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him. That's betrothed in the old-fashioned words terminology, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Now, we don't know how close to delivery Mary was. Joseph may have left very early in the pregnancy to get her out of town to avoid scandal, but it sounds like it was sort of late in the pregnancy because by the time he got down there, he had to put her in a barn because there was no room in the inn, and so she gave birth. But now, if it was close to her delivery think about how hard that was to be unmarried pregnant and riding a donkey can you imagine how rough that was but again that's a speculation that she she traveled late i don't know if she traveled that late she might have traveled a little bit earlier than that it says while they were there the time came for the baby to be born while they were there which might have mean they came earlier in the pregnancy and and hung around for a while before the baby was born but at any rate they didn't have a place to stay. Luke verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger, a feeding trough for animals, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, she wrapped her own baby. Think about this. She's just traveled a long journey. She's just had her first child. She doesn't have a lot of experience with having babies. She did not have a midwife. Her husband, Joseph, could have assisted in the birth, but what did he know about having babies? Absolutely nothing. It was his first child, too. <laughs> and so so she delivers the baby, and then she, after giving birth, wraps the baby in clothes. I, just make, make, I remember being scared to death when I had my first child, and I wasn't even the one giving birth to the baby. I don't, I don't know how she did it, but she did. She had no family and friends to help her. You know, now... Mothers, especially, rush to their daughters when their daughters are giving birth to the, to the grandchild. You know that that's sort of typical. Not back then. She didn't have any friends with her helping her to have the babies. Now notice that she gave birth to her firstborn. The inference is that she had children later. If you have a firstborn, well, then that sort of implies that you have a secondborn, at least. But now 
The Catholics say that Mary was a virgin till she died. The perpetual virginity of Mary. I don't think so. Now, she placed Jesus, the little baby Jesus, in a manger, which, as I said, was a feeding trough for animals. What a remarkable place for the new Lord of mankind to be born. In a lousy manger with straw. I wonder how sanitary that was. A newborn baby placed in the straw. When this birth occurred, of course, is not known exactly. The Western Church celebrates December the 25th. That's because they took over a pagan Roman holiday. I think it was the winter solstice, if I remember correctly. And so they said, okay, that's going to be Jesus' birthday. In the Eastern Church, they chose January the 6th. But we don't know when he was born. And in my humble opinion, it is foolish to speculate. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of my audio here for Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you listen to the next one as we continue with the story of Jesus' birth. 